couple of announcements this morning. I often don't uh, express how much our class is indebted to and appreciates all the work that Dean does for us because we wouldn't be online and we wouldn't have these great recordings and we wouldn't reach nearly as many people if it wasn't for Dean. And yesterday happened to be Dean's birthday. So let's uh, sing happy birthday to Dean today. Okay? Happy birthday to Let's begin class with prayer this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we ask that you will uh, join us today as we study, that our hearts and minds will be drawn closer to you every day, that we will be changed to be like you, that we will be effective in communicating your grace, your goodness, your kingdom of love. We pray for our community who's, who's still recovering from the tragic storms of a couple of weeks ago, that you will reach out and, uh, and heal and, and touch the families that have been involved and and may you take this, uh, these events and turn hearts and minds to ask the questions of the grander theme, what's going on on planet Earth and, and where is our salvation or really reside? And hearts may find you. We pray that we can be effective witnesses in this time uh, as Earth is drawing to its close. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson uh, number uh, seven in our quarter. Wait, no, lesson number eight, excuse me, in our quarterly um, Garments of Grace, uh, Clothing Imagery in the Bible. And the le- lesson title this week is Garment, Garments of Splendor. Garments of Splendor. And the memory text, somebody read the memory text for us. It's Isaiah 61 10. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God. For he hath clothed me with garments of salvation, and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. And we won't talk about jewelry, okay? We'll just skip that part of our discussion today. Um, But as you read this, I I got the question. If you lived in Isaiah's day, and Isaiah wrote this and, and spoke these words, what would it mean to you? Well, did the people in the Old Testament times put on a garment of salvation that's different than the garment of salvation we put on? No. Or do we put on the same garment of salvation? The same. same. Well, what is that garment? What is the garment of salvation that is being referenced here by Isaiah? Christ's robe of righteousness. How do we put on that garment? How do we actually get dressed in the garment of salvation? From the inside out. From the inside out. Was there a contemporary of Isaiah that might have shed some light on this idea of of getting dressed in the garment of salvation? Well, let's look at Zechariah chapter 3. And you might want to turn there in your Bibles because we're going to go through the first few verses of Zechariah 3, all the way through verse 6, 1 through 6. Let's start with verse 1. He showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. So before we get into the next section, let's just identify our characters. Who does Joshua, the high priest, represent? The Christ versus, or the people. Well, maybe let's put that one off to a side for a moment and ask, who does the angel of the Lord represent? That would be Christ, Well, some people have trouble with the terminology, but I always like to look to Exodus chapter 3, 
starting in verse 1. I love this. If people ever question who the angel of the Lord is, just go to Exodus 3, 1 through 6. It says, Moses was tending the flock in of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to a far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Now, who is appearing to him within this bush? The angel of the Lord. Moses saw that, uh, saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. He said, I will go over and see this strange sight. In verse 4, when the Lord saw that he had gone over to, the, to look, God called to him from within the bush. Now, wait a minute. Who's in that bush? God, also the angel of the Lord. And it goes on the next verse. Um, Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer. God said, take off your sandals. The place where you stand is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. And so we have this, this, this documentation that sometimes God refers to himself as the angel of the Lord. Now, which member of the Godhead is this. This would be Christ. So in our story in Zechariah, when it says that the angel of the Lord, the the, uh, high priest Joshua, angel of the Lord, and Satan were were there, the angel of the Lord represents Christ. Who would the high priest represent in this story? The priesthood of believers. Yeah, the priesthood of believers. This is who it's representing. So, And Satan, of course, is playing himself. Verse 2 of Zechariah 3. The Lord said to Satan... The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Who is speaking to Satan here? Christ is speaking to Satan. What do you what do you understand is happening in that section? What's happening? What's transpiring? What's being described? It's interesting to see that Jesus is here showed as an angel while he was on with Satan, and before Satan fell, also as an angel next to the throne of God. So in that capacity, they are facing each other. Did you hear? Did everybody hear that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he says that, uh, that in this capacity in the story, Christ is represented as an angel, as before Lucifer's fall, Christ uh, presented himself as an angel. So Christ is facing uh, Lucifer in, in a manifestation um, uh, that, that uh, relates to Lucifer, or Satan. Right. Well, let's read the rest of the passage and then break it down. It says, Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin and will put rich garments on you. We're asking the question, How do we get dressed in the garments of salvation? Then he said, Put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. The angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. This is what the Lord Almighty says. If you will walk in my ways and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you a place among these standing here. Listen, O high priest Joshua, and your associates seated before you, who are men symbolic of things to come. I am going to bring my servant the branch. Interesting. What do you all think this means? Something has to happen on the inside first before the robe of Christ could be applied. So what clothing was Joshua the high priest originally dressed in our story here? Filthy Filthy rags or clothing. Who is accusing Joshua the high priest? Why is the devil accusing Joshua the high priest, or the people in this case? Why is he accusing? What is the basis of his accusations? Because he is blaming God 
that he will forgive us and that Satan will eventually die never to come back again. He's also saying that every sin and every sinner must be, pun- must be punished. Yeah, he, he's also making the claim that we read in Desire of Ages 762, um, the opening of the great controversy, Satan alleged that the law of God could not be obeyed, and if it should be broken, every sin must meet its punishment, urged Satan. And if God should remit the punishment of sin, he would not be a God of truth and justice. So in this story here, you hear the same kind of thing coming through. Hey, these guys are sinners. They require punishment. Justice requires they be punished. Do you hear that coming through here in these accusations? Okay. Jim? Yes. There's one other thing. I think he's trying to discourage the human this and to get him to give up. Thank you for pointing this out. How many of you besides me have ever sinned? Okay, you don't have to raise your hand. I already know everybody. Okay? Have you ever had the trouble of after uh, falling short, making mistakes, sinning, that you felt discouraged? You had, a, uh, you had a, uh, maybe some ruminations in your mind that, that you weren't worthy, you were no good, uh, uh, your, your, your case is hopeless, why should you even try? I mean, Christ must be really tired of you by now. Uh, this, have you ever had these types of ideas, emotions, or thoughts come through your mind? Do you think that's part of what the accusations are about? He's accusing. Do you think these accusations of the devil are really going to discourage God? God's going to go, wow, you know, Mr. Devil, I didn't realize how bad these people were. <laughs> Boy, you've made a good case here. I think, yeah, I think I'll just give up on these guys. Is that ever going to happen? No. no. So these accusations aren't to discourage God. I think you're exactly right. I think they, they are to discourage us. Yes. Uh, interesting, given the fact that all the things that have just happened with Osama bin Laden and whatnot in America carrying out justice, that our definition of American justice is carrying out punishment and death to the one who wronged us. And here Satan is presenting that same thing, that justice is death and punishment, not life and freedom. Did anybody hear NPR yesterday evening? Anybody? You heard it too. Good. One other person. It's very interesting because you're exactly right. The President Obama stands up and says justice has been carried out or justice has been served. They interviewed on NPR uh, some of the um, various um, uh, newspaper people involved in this, and they, and they brought on a lady who lost a loved one in the Pentagon, uh, 9-1-1-2001. And they asked her about this idea of justice. And what Obama said, what do you believe about this idea that justice has now been served? And she said, well, that's a very common use of the word. But I would like to believe that justice is something more than that. That justice is, is reaching our highest ideals to do what's actually right and best for, for others. Okay? Not simply a vengeful idea or retribution. Justice is an idea free of vengeance. That's what she said. It was, it was amazing. It was wonderful. It's like, oh, this is great. And then they asked the reporters, what do you think about what, and this is a woman who's lost a loved one in the Pentagon. What do you think about what she said about justice? And, and they said, that was a magnanimous description, a, a, a beautiful, magnanimous, uh, gracious description of, of justice, um, which, is, which is an ideal that few of us ever reach, <laughs> basically. Um, but I thought it was right on the money, don't you think? Yeah, yeah so I, I just thought you'd like to know, that went out over the airwaves yesterday. Um, it was quite, quite nice. If you guys want to hear, I'm sure you can go to npr.org and find the story and, uh, and, and find that from yesterday's uh, stuff and hear it. Yes. There was a story a while back about a young girl, my daughter's age, who went over to Africa to help, and she was killed by the tribe that she was helping. 
and the parents came to that tribe. Well, the tribe being very fearful of the parents were going to take revenge, which is what they would do. But instead, the parents introduced themselves and got a business going and helped them to find employment. And they were just amazed that the vengeance they took was actually a resolution to the people's problems, why they were destitute and hungry and vicious and everything. And it turned that whole tribe around. Isn't that exactly, was it last week or the week before we read about God's vengeance in here? Last week, we read the scripture text that when, when God takes vengeance, he cleanses us from sin. I will cleanse, I will, uh, and we'll read it again here. It comes up in the lesson again today. We'll, we'll get to that. Let's finish up what we're talking about here. Um, so we're talking about Joshua. He's clothed in these filthy clothes. The devil is accusing him. We've, we've explored some of the reasons why the devil, the devil is doing this. How did Joshua get dressed in these filthy clothes in the first place? Where did these filthy clothes come from? Did Joshua choose to, to dress himself in these filthy clothes? Did Joshua put these on himself? No. Or was Joshua born with such clothing? No. As, uh, Psalm 51, David says, we were born in sin, conceived in iniquity. Since Adam and Eve sinned, are any of us born with righteous clothing? No. Are we born with the rags of you know, all of us, all of our... Righteousness is as filthy rags, the scripture says. Is that our condition from birth? Yes. We have a, a bent, a, a warp, a, a, an inherent self-centeredness. We are no longer operating de novo in harmony with God's law of love, which was originally in Adam and Eve. He put his law in Adam and Eve when he d- designed and built them. They deviated from that, and we're born with what law is the primary motivator? Survival of the fittest. That's the thing we're born with. That's why Christ said we have to be born again, or we have to have the law written in the heart. Did you notice from whom was Christ defending Joshua? And he really didn't argue with him. He just said, the Lord rebuke you, the Lord rebuke you. Does it remind you of any other time where the angel of the Lord said this to the devil? When he was resurrecting Moses, remember? Resurrect Moses, Satan shows up, and what's the, Lord, what's the angel of the Lord say to him? Nothing but the Lord rebuke you. The Lord rebuke you. It gives you a clue of what, how, how serious the Lord takes Satan's allegations. The Lord doesn't take them very serious. Because Satan is a legalist. He's the, he's the ultimate and, and he's the purveyor of legalism. It's all about the do's and the don'ts and paying the prices and all these things. God is a healer, a restorer, a regenerator. He's a rebuilder. Did you notice in the text... When the angel of the Lord said, remove the filthy clothing, what actually gets removed? He says, see, I have taken away your sin. Now, where does the sin get taken away from? The heart. Does it get taken away from the record books of heaven? No, from the heart. Or does it get actually taken away from Joshua, the high priest? How many times have you heard the idea that what happens in the judgment is that there's a review court going on in the books and they're looking to see if the blood of Christ has been applied to record books of heaven. And if the blood's been applied, then sins are erased from record books. Is that where Christ is working, to cleanse record books? Or is he working to cleanse people, hearts and minds, to remove sin from our characters, to change us? Yes. It seems as though that's what Satan's attempting to pull off, is set up some trial here, though, and... God just rebukes him and cleanses Joshua. Exactly, exactly. That's why Jesus said, 
he who eats my body and drinks my blood. We'll have, uh, yes, if, they, if you don't do this, you have no part with me. Yes, and uh, exactly. So, if you put these pieces together, my mind is just reaching out to so many different references right now. Um, if you put these pieces together, what does uh, what does Ellen White said say is actually recorded in the record books? She says in the record books of heaven are and she uses the word daguerreotype, but photograph of the character is recorded exactly in the record books of heaven as the image to the plate of a fo- of, of a photographic plate. So what's being recorded there is our character. How does the record book then get changed in heaven? If God is going to go and change our record book, how does he do it? By changing us. The avenue to our record book is through our hearts and minds. And that's why Christ works in hearts and minds, because the record books are simply a perfect transcript of what's happening in our hearts, minds, and characters. And so that's where he cleanses the books. Um, Where do the new clothes... Where do the new clothes that Joshua gets dressed in, where do they come from? Where do they originate? With Christ. With Christ. And what do they represent? His righteous life. His character. Ah, so your computers are going right now, and you're thinking Christ's object lessons, page 311. Okay, the robe woven in the loom of heaven uh, without one thread of human devising, right? And when our hearts are brought in harmony with his, and our mind is brought in ca- captivity with his, we think his thoughts, this is what it means to be clothed with the robe of his righteousness. Okay, yeah, good. Um, it says in the text that Joshua and the fellow sitting there with him are symbolic of things to come. What do you think that means? Symbolic of some future thing. What things to come might that be? The judgment. The judgment? The, the antitypical day of atonement? Could it be that? The time when, when the devil begins accusing? The time when Christ begins cleansing his people? Removing their sin? Clothing him in the robe of his righteousness? What does it say that Ellen White says that when the character of Christ is perfectly reproduced in his people... Is clothing people in the robes of righteousness and removing their sin analogous or synonymous with the character of Christ being perfectly reproduced with his people? Are they, are they the same? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't, isn't reproducing his character within us the same as clothing us in his righteousness? So, then, then what do you think it meant to have the branch plucked from the fire? Is this not a branch plucked from the fire. We're speaking of Joshua. I like this text. You were doomed for destruction, but God took you out. Mm-hmm. See, where are we by natural birth? Because of Adam's sin. We are born in sin, conceived in iniquity. We are, without God's intervention, without Christ stepping into the breach, without God interceding into the process, we are being consumed by sin, are we not? But God steps into the process. He puts his hand in the fire. He gets burned to, to deliver us from the fire. We're branches burning in sin that he pulls out of the fire. Is that not what's happening? Yeah. yeah. And I like this uh, that Jesus said in John fourteen twelve. I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will e- even do greater things than these because I am going to the Father. Have you considered doing greater things than Jesus? What does that mean? I think it's connected to the branch plucked from the fire myself. If you were dying with cancer and a physician intervened and healed you, 
Do you get to go about bragging on how you healed yourself? No. Do you get to be a witness for the healing remedy of the physician? Now, think about this. Did Christ in his life on earth demonstrate perfect character, a sinless human life? Did he demonstrate that? Did Christ demonstrate in his life how the power of God working through the Spirit, how the law of love, the Holy Spirit, the God's methods, principles, when applied to a life that is habituated in sin, restores and heals? Did Christ show that? No. Christ didn't have a sinful heart, a sinful character, didn't have warped bad habit patterns, didn't have guilty conscience, didn't have shame. He didn't have any of that. But do those of us who have lived in sin, who experience, as it was said earlier, partake of Christ, drink his blood, eat his flesh, if we partake of Christ, do we get a transforming process that happens? And so through what Christ has done, do we get a regenerating thing that demonstrates, hey, not only can God's methods and principles and his spirit dwelling in a being, Jesus on earth, living by faith, um, can be kept from sin, which is what Christ showed, but God's power in the life of a sinner can rebuild, restore, regenerate, and recreate a sinner in righteousness. That's cool, isn't it? We live his life. Yes, we live his life, yes. Um, and then, So then we read in Ezekiel 36, 22 through 27. Therefore say to the house of Israel, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when I show myself holy through you before their eyes. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from the countries and bring you back to your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Man, isn't that cool? And and when he does that, who gets the credit? You notice what it said in the context that his holy name will be revealed to the nations through people. How? By taking branches that are burned in the fire and plucking them out and restoring them. And you see this uh, metaphorically in the Old Testament sanctuary service in the Old Covenant box. The Old Covenant box, there was three things kept in the Old Covenant box. What was inside the box? Manna. The law and Aaron's rod that budded. In which order? Which, if you look at the history, the progression, the actual chronologic history, which was the first they received? The manna. They got the manna first, and then they got the law, and then Aaron's rod budded. And you take this progression, and the manna. Jesus said, "If you'll have it, the manna represents what? The bread of life, which is." I am the bread of life that have come down from heaven, right? So if we partake of Christ, the truth that he reveals, it changes us from distrust in God. We're one back to trust in him. And once we're one back to trust, we open the heart. What's the new covenant experience? He does what? I write my law on your heart and mind, right? This is uh, Hebrews chapter 8. 
And once he's written his law on the heart and mind, we're no longer operating selfishly. We're now operating lovingly. And so we, which were dead sticks like Aaron's rod, begin budding peaceable fruits of righteousness. We come to life and live for God. And you see this progression. Partake of Christ. Trust in him. The Holy Spirit writes the law, and we which were dead are alive again and live for, for God in righteousness. And so this is, again, I see the parallel here through the, the stick which was on fire being brought to life again. Isn't it beautiful? And you see this also in Malachi chapter 3. The Lord that you seek will come to his temple suddenly, and he will cleanse the Levites and make them like silver and gold. Okay, Sunday's lesson. Sunday's lesson, second paragraph. Perhaps the scariest part in all of this is found, I'm talking about Isaiah chapter 1, uh, 1 through 5, the first five chapters. It says, perhaps the scariest part in all this is found in the first chapter of Isaiah, in which the Lord decries all their religious observances and practices. In other words, these people who professed to serve the Lord and who went through the forms of worship, and yet what does the Lord say about their worship? And so let's read Isaiah 1, 11 through 18. Isaiah 1, 11 through 18, starting in uh, verse 11. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough burnt offerings and rams and fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations. I can't bear your evil assemblies. Your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Now, actually... Who did ask them to observe the Sabbath and do burnt offerings and keep the feast days? Who was it that asked them to do these things? Christ, God, asked them to do these things. Well, what was the problem then? It had become meaningless to them. Anybody else? Margaret said they had become meaningless to them, and you read it right in verse 13. He says, stop bringing meaningless Offerings. See, is there anything actually meritorious about slaughtering an animal? No. Is there anything meritorious about ceasing work from sunset Friday to sunset Saturday and going to church? Anything meritorious in that? No. Anything meritorious in bringing your tithes each week? Eating the right foods? Anything meritorious in any of this? No. What are the purposes? They forgot the meaning. Well, read verse 17 and 18. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. They are red like crimson. They shall be like wool. Do you, do you feel God is connecting here some connection between reasoning out the truth with God and cleansing from sin? What do you see that connection to be? How are they connected? Reasoning with God and, and cleansing from sin. Well, the next, the next sentence says, if you're willing and obedient, good things will happen. If you're willing to open your minds up to what God has to say versus to what you think, and then you obey, you choose his way over yours. Well, let's talk about that, willing and obedient. When Christ came 2,000 years ago, 
if we look at the blueprint and the template that God prescribed for their behavior and how they should live, how are these people doing as far as their Sabbath observance, their tithe paying, the diet they were eating, um, all the things that they were to do as far as obedience goes? How are they doing? Yet something was missing. Because when God stood among them, they hated him and they killed him. Yes. Then these things weren't an end in themselves. The purpose was to connect with something in their brain, to give them a deeper understanding. It's like you said a couple of weeks ago. In a sense, they weren't word metaphors. They were actual physical metaphors for something bigger. They were doing the act, thinking the act in and of itself was going to reap the results that it needed. God gave them the act to develop a deeper understanding in their mind of concepts that they didn't have yet. Yes, that was well said. Yes, Russell. Back to your question about the process of reasoning. If you, if we grapple and reason with, with God himself, which only represents truth and light, that's all, that's all he has to, to give us is truth and light. There's, some, there's something about the human psyche that if we grapple and reason with that, we're one to trust. If we reject truth and light, then the only thing we can be left is, is to give and over to believe a lie. Exactly right. And so if you put this back in the context of the whole of Scripture, 1 Corinthians 10 through through 5, for though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not worldly. They have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish every argument and pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought to Jesus Christ. Do we believe that the primary issue in this war is one of what's happening in our minds over God is the central issue? If that's the case, then do we see why God is saying, you've got to come reason with me, guys. You've got to come and get a knowledge. Life eternal, John 17, 3. This is life eternal. They might know you, the only true God. Paul in Romans chapter 1 tells them when they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, their minds became futile, depraved, and darkened. So I, I think there's a direct connection between reasoning with God, coming and bringing the mind in contact with divine that heals, cleanses, and restores us. And if we do rituals without that process, it only becomes, it actually creates superstition. Superstition darkens the mind. Yes. So even if we know that the law is good and right and uh, leads to a better life, unless we love that law and really desire to be that way, even though we know it's good, it doesn't change us. We have to love what it represents. That's exactly right. A man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. If you do the right thing for the wrong reasons, I mean, think this through. It's not in your heart to do it. You know you're supposed to. I have patients who have addictions of various kinds. Let's say, let's just take a simple one, nicotine addiction, smoking cigarettes. They know it's bad for them. They've gotten to the point they've got bad lung disease. They've got to wear oxygen now. They know they have to quit or they're going to die, so they quit. Because they know it's right, but they really don't want to. They love their cigarettes. They want to smoke still. So they're not smoking, but they're miserable. They're miserable. They don't want to be free of it. They just have to by circumstance or forced or to die. That's not really obey- obedience, is it? Nella White says the, that those who obey begrudgingly out of a sense of obligation merely never enter the joy of obedience. And this is what it means. Produces a rebel. It's right, and, and she goes on to say it actually produces the character of a rebel. That's right. It hardens the heart. So we must pass. Pa- we must press past simple symbolic representations of things and understand um, the various meaning behind God's symbols, so we understand Him, His kingdom, His methods, His principles, what's happening in the great controversy. 
over his character. God wants, did you agree, would you agree, God wants intelligent worship and worshipers? Okay, Monday's lesson asks us to contemplate Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6, starting verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, the Lord, I saw the Lord seated on his throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? I, and I said, Here am I. Send me. What's going on? What do you hear? What's being described? Is, is Isaiah seeing a literal picture of heaven or is his vision a symbolic representation of something else? Is it literal? Is, is there a temple in heaven and God has a, a physical train on a robe that has filled the entire temple from floor to ceiling? Because that's what's described. The, the train of his robe filled the temple. Did an angel bring an actual burning coal and put it on his, on his lips? Is it symbol? Is it symbol? What does it mean? Did you notice here it said, after the coal touched his lips, the words are, your guilt is taken away and your sins atoned for. What does it mean that his guilt is taken away and sin atoned for? From where is guilt removed? Was it legal guilt removed from a um, prosecutor's docket in heavenly courts? Was it guilt, a conscious guilt, removed from the mind and heart of Isaiah? Well, what about this idea of the coal taken from the altar, removing guilt and atoning for sin? I thought it must be blood. I thought blood did that. How is it a coal is doing that? Yeah. The guilt is also taken away by rebuking Satan, who is making us feel guilty, and who wants to put guilt in us? He said the guilt is also removed by rebuking Satan. See, Satan is the source of trying to make us feel guilty, too. Yeah, he does. He does bring those things to our attention, make us focus on the shortcomings and, and sickness rather than on the healer and, and the promise of wellness. Mm-hmm. But what do you think about the idea of coal from this temple removing guilt and atoning for sin? Have you ever thought that one through before? Uh, uh, we are cleansed by the coal. <laughs> it's a symbol, just as the blood is a symbol. We have got into our psyche that somehow the blood is more than a symbol. And so we, 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 we hone and attach to that. Um, yes? Comparing this with the Zechariah uh, illustration earlier, I find it interesting that one sinner is being plucked from the fire, 
saved from the fire and one is being healed by the fire. The coal, yeah. Yeah. The temple imagery has multiple applications. In other words, the temple represents symbolically many things. One of the things the temple represents is Christ. Tear down this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. Remember, Christ said this. Okay? Um, Christ said, unless you eat my flesh, drink my blood. You have no part with me. Could this application of the coal to the lips represent the application via the work of the Holy Spirit of Christ's character into the heart and mind? Could it represent that? Conversion. Conversion. Um, Could it represent the burning out of selfishness and sinfulness from our characters and writing in the law of love into the heart? Could it represent that? Or am I I overstating because I want it to represent that, so I just say it? What do you all think? Well, he's talking about unclean lips, him and all the people. Mm-hmm. So, obviously, it's a metaphor for the sinful utterances, the sinful nature. And so, the coal representing maybe truth is being applied and taking, healing that. What do you all think? Other, other comments? There's another place that talks about burning coal. That when you're unselfishly good to someone else, it's like heaping burning coals of fire on their head. Okay. Do you think they're connected? Yeah, in the in that we are given that sort of behavior. It's not normal for us, but we're given that, and the outflowing of that behavior, the inflowing of that behavior, creates it. The outflowing of that goes to other people. No, I think they're connected too. What? Where is the source of selfless love? Where is its source? In, in in heaven, in God, He's the source. God is love, and in the temple imagery. We have the, the temple imagery as a teaching tool about how God uh, brings people who are sinned back into unity with himself, which would be bringing us back into harmony with love. So I, I think there's a, a definite connection when you do kindness and love, you heat burning coals. These burning coals represent the outflow of love. I think so, yeah. Can you look at coal from a different perspective? Yeah. What is coal's purpose? It, it gives energy to produce an end result. And I think in the temple imagery, the, the, the burning fire represents the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is what energizes, transforms, motivates. Sure. Absolutely. And so this would be the cleansing work of the Spirit in the heart and the mind. This is out of Conflict and Courage, page 234. Isaiah had denounced the sin of others. But now he sees, this is actually in response to the vision we just read, but now he sees himself exposed to the same condemnation he had pronounced upon them. He had been satisfied with a cold, lifeless ceremony in his worship of God. I didn't know Isaiah. That's, that's what she says about Isaiah. He had not known, known this until the vision was given him of the Lord. How little now appeared his wisdom and talents as he looked upon the sacredness and majesty of the sanctuary, how unworthy he was, how unfitted for sacred service. The vision given to Isaiah represents the condition of God's people in the last days. This vision I just read, according to Ellen White, represents you and me. The people of unclean lips. In the last days, a people who satisfy with a cold, lifeless ceremony in our worship of God. That's what she's saying here. They are privileged to see by faith the work that is going forward in the heavenly sanctuary. And the temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in his temple the Ark of the Testament. 
And they look by faith into the Holy of Holies and see the work of Christ in the heavenly sanctuary. They perceive that they are a people of unclean lips, a people whose lips have often spoken vanity and whose talents have not been sanctified and employed to the glory of God. Well may they despair as they contrast their own weakness and unworthiness with the purity and loveliness of the glorious character of Christ. But if they, like Isaiah, will receive the impression the Lord designs shall be made upon the heart, if they will humble their souls before God, if there is hope for them. The bow of promise is above the throne, and the work done for Isaiah will be performed in them. God will respond to the petitions coming from the contrite heart. We want the living coal from the altar placed upon our lips. We want to hear the word spoken. Thine iniquity is taken away. Thy sin is purged. Now get this last sentence. The live coal is symbolic of purification. If it touches the lips, no impure word will fall from them. Boy, how many want that live coal? Absolutely. We want our minds to be purified, to speak only the things that are true about God. That is cool. Really cool. Any thoughts on, on is there anything we have to do to, to have that? How about willingness? How about willingness? A humble surrender is what was described. Lord, I can't do it. Touch my lips with the hot coal from your altar. Cleanse my heart. Open my mind. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew your right spirit within me. It's all describing the same from various points of Scripture, isn't it? And then Tuesday's lesson asks us to consider, I'm telling you, Isaiah is a phenomenal book, guys. It's so much good stuff in Isaiah. Um, but it asks us to consider Isaiah 51, 6 through 8. It says, lift up your eyes to heaven. Look at the earth beneath. The heavens will vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment. And its inhabitants die like flies. But my salvation will last forever. My righteousness will never fail. Hear me, you who have known what is right. You people who have my law in your hearts, do not fear the reproach of men or be terrified by their insults. For the moth will eat them up like a garment. The worm will devour them like wool. But my righteousness will last forever, my salvation through all generations. What do you think about this? Who is it that, according to the text, hears the Lord? Those who have his law in their hearts. Yes. Yeah, go ahead. You've dealt with narcissistic personalities. My question is, how difficult is it for them to see the truth about themselves? Because the truth about themselves would destroy their self-concept and change them into the kind of people who are focused on others and not just on themselves. Yeah, I think uh, that's a great question because narcissism, of course, is the ultimate outgrowth of, a, a, of our natural carnal nature, if not healed. We are born self-centered, egocentric, and narcissism is the ultimate egocentrism. Actually, narcissism isn't quite the ultimate. Um, narcissism is on a continuum. And there's one, if you keep going down that continuum, you pass narcissism and you end up in, anybody know? They think they are Christ or something Sociopath. Sociopath. Going back to childhood very often, what, what are the causes of narcissism which become very difficult to get people to be released from? I'm not sure that their sort of praying to Christ to come in and change their hearts is going to be enough. I think they need a professional's kind of guidance. I could be wrong. But. Yeah, the difference between a narcissist and a sociopath is the narcissist can still experience guilt. 
sociopaths don't experience guilt anymore. So you might say the narcissist, even though they are self-absorbed and self-centered, have, still have a conscience that can convict. The sociopaths don't have a conscience anymore. The conscience is seared with a hot iron. They don't get convictions of guilt anymore. So that's the big deal. They're both still self-absorbed, but there's hope for the narcissist. The sociopath generally is beyond that reach because there's, they, they experience no wrong in anything they do. Everyone else is wrong. Now, how does it get started? It gets started, actually, you, you, you say in childhood, we are born. How many infants are born interested in whether mom's rested and well-fed? No, infants are narcissistic. Uh, children are narcissistic. We're self-absorbed. And so in childhood, we either experience environment that brings God's loving methods to bear to counter our natural inclinations to our self-centeredness, or we experience uh, experiences that gratify the selfish character and, and solidify it. And those experiences can be varied. You can have the experience of the overindulgent child, the one who every selfish gratification is, is uh, desires gratified and, and given into, and they become very narcissistic. Uh, you can also have those, though, who aren't personally d- directly gratified, they're neglected. And, they're, uh, and, and or abandoned or mistreated. And therefore, as a defense against no one loves me, they develop a selfish, narcissistic love of self to protect self from, uh, from disintegration from those who should validate them in a healthy way. So it can happen in a variety of ways, but the ultimate is we're born already on the wrong trajectory. Yes? My, my, my theory is, and that's all it is, when death came into the world because of sin... It, it was virtually impossible for a baby to be born without a self-preservation instinct. That's right. Exactly right. Which inevitably becomes self-centeredness that, unless they're educated out of it as they grow. That's right. So it seems to me the fear of death is partly to blame for all our neuroses and our, our tendency to be self-centered. The resurrection hopefully conquers your fear of death if you believe in it with all your heart. And so if you believe that death is not to be feared, you now can be, in the, under the power of the Spirit, liberated in every other way, I think. Well, and this is a, a whole school of psychiatry. It's called existential psychiatry that deals with this very issue that death, and they deal with it from a humanistic point of view, not a Christian point of view, that death is the primary motivator that drives to self-survival and self-preservation. And if you resolve the, uh, and, and, they, and they talk about different ways to, cause the death anxiety to be gone to to, to uh, be gotten rid of one is having children if we have children we don't die we pass ourselves along in our children well, another is to do some great endeavor artwork music something we leave behind so that we live on in our work and these are things that they talk about people doing as a way to fight off the fears of death i think you bring up some good points and it is true it is love that sets us free from that it is love that sets us free from that So in our text in Isaiah 51, what does it mean to have the law written in the heart? The law written in the heart. Those are the ones who hear the voice of God. What does it mean to have the law written in the heart? Does it mean that you worship on the right day of the week? Because it is right. Because it's very commonly preached in certain um, groups around the country that Revelation speaks about a remnant group who are faithful and loyal to the commandments of God. And what that means is they keep the right day of the week worship. That's what it means. It's boiled down to that one thing. Is that what it means to have the law written on the heart? No. Did those who put Christ on the cross have a problem on which day was the right day to worship? No. 
No. no, it's much more than that. Much more than that. To have the law written on the heart, would it not mean that you have been regenerated to the point that God's design protocols for life, which we call the law of love, his methods for running the universe, selfless, other-centered giving, are the operating principles that you live by. And it says in Revelation 12 then, before it actually gets to the, the Revelation 13 text about the these are they that keep the commandments of God, in Revelation 12 it describes these are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. They've already had that fear of death removed. They're not afraid of it anymore. And that's how they're able to be faithful to the commandments of God and not shrink. So, boy, that was a nice tie-in, wasn't it? (laughs) (laughs) The Holy Spirit's leading us right there. That's good. Yeah. Jesus himself said, the whole law and prophets rest on love God with all your heart, soul, strength, mind, body, and your neighbors yourself. Every one of the laws hangs on those two things. That's absolutely right. So if we live in a church in which the law... Oh, go ahead, over here, comment, yes. Uh, following up on what you just said, Luke 12, four we read this morning, and I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who would kill the body, and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after killing of the body, has power to throw you into hell. And yes, I tell you, fear him. That's uh, Luke 12, Okay, because Matthew ten twenty eight says the same thing and a little bit different. It says, don't be afraid of the one who can destroy the body, but the one who can destroy the body and soul in hell. Do you know what the Greek word for soul is? And I'm not a Greek scholar, but the Greek word for soul? Suke or psyche. It means your individuality, your identity. Don't be afraid of what they do to the body. Be afraid of what destroys the character, the mind, the psyche, the individuality. Be afraid of that. And what is it destroys that? Sin and selfishness. Yeah, that's what it is. Sin and selfishness destroys that. That's what we should fear, not what can happen to the body. Okay, uh, and... We should fear him that can do that. Yeah, and who's the one who can do that? Who's the only one who can decide whether your psyche, your character gets destroyed or not? Who's the one you should fear? What does Ellen White say? The greatest battle each one of us has to fight is the battle with... Self. Self. (laughs) We're the ones we should fear. (laughs) You see the movie um, Bruce Almighty? He was given the power of God. You should fear any one of us getting the power of God. (laughs) You should fear that. Yes, absolutely. Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely, except for Christ who proved that it didn't corrupt him. He had all power and was corruptless. Um, So the law written on the heart and mind looks like Christ. That's what it looks like. And so in the church, if we have a church where the law is written on the heart and mind, how do we treat each other? How do we treat each other? As brothers and sisters. There was a message given at the community church a week ago where it talked about Christians don't turn on each other. Christians don't throw each other out. That's what was preached a week ago. We don't throw each other out if we're Christians because we love each other. Yeah. Yeah. Wednesday's lesson, I'm going to close with this. Wednesday's lesson, first paragraph in Wednesday's lesson, says, It's always easy when reading the Old Testament to get caught up in all the warning of gloom and doom. Critics of the Bible love to point out, uh, point out these things and claim, who would want to worship or love a God like that? Do some people actually promote a severe and revengeful and angry and wrathful God? Do some people actually preach that, promote that? Does it make a difference in whom we become, in which type of God we worship. Well, uh, Kathy Kiley this week 
um, sent me an article from the Los Angeles Times, which reported uh, on a recent research article that found there were no differences in cheating in college exams between those who believed in God and those who don't believe in God. But then they, cut, they broke it down, and they looked at those who did believe in God, those who believe in a compassionate God versus those who believe in an angry, vengeful God. Those who believe in the compassionate God were significantly more likely to cheat than those who believe in an angry, wrathful God. I have put the web link in here so you can read the article yourself. This was a peer, peer-reviewed study that was published. Okay, it was a well-done study. So she, she emailed me and said, what do you make of this? What do you guys make of this? It's, it's quite straightforward, actually, but what do you make of it? People do what they think they can get away with. That's exactly right. And so if you take that thought, pull that thread, why then would the people who believe in the compassionate God be more likely to cheat than those who believe in a punitive God? What's the underlying problem? See, both groups, you're exactly right, both groups are operating on the same misconception of God's kingdom and universe. And the misconception is God is the great lawgiver who wrote out a law and put it to us that we have to now obey. And as the lawgiver, he is now the law enforcer. And if you break the law, he meets out the penalties. And if you have a compassionate God, he will not meet out such bad penalties. If you have a punitive God, he will make you pay. So you better not do anything bad. Those who actually understand what Ellen White talked about, that sin reacts upon the sinner, makes a change in us, makes it easier for us to sin again, sears the conscience, warps the reason, damages and destroys uh, goodness within us, and takes us further and further away from God, understand that God doesn't have to mete out a punishment. Sin pays its wage. The wage is death. Sin, when full grown, brings forth death. James chapter 1. Yes? In my experience with these students, they don't think it's wrong. They don't. Re- they really don't think there are moral facts that say this is wrong and it's always wrong. And this is. They think it's opinion and it's society and it's culture. It's a new way of dealing with the, with ethics that this generation has created. It's unbelievable. Very morally relativistic. A friend that I know, a physician, a psychiatrist from Philadelphia, was at a um, convention at one of those like hotel conventions. They had a, a buffet, and uh, if you've ever been to some of these things, they will often have a chef there which will cook you an omelet that, that you like to have made for yourself. And there was a line, and he was in the line. There's like five people in front of him waiting for the chef. And a guy that just comes in with his son and sits his stuff down, and they walk right up to the front of the line, right where the chef is. And the chef said, uh, there's a line. And, and so the guy goes to the back right where uh, the, my friend is, and my friend says to him, kiddingly, he said, uh, um, were, you, were you trying to cut the line? And uh, just kind of joking. And the guy said, straight-faced, absolutely. If you're not cheating, you're not trying. <laughs> See, this is what they're being taught, right? Okay, this is what society is teaching. And see, so they take and they take and twist. This is the world, and the things of the world are not in harmony with things of God. There is no compromise here. This kind of philosophy—it's a nice little joking twist that he's now teaching his son. His son is being taught: if you're not cheating, you're not trying. This is a lie. It's a distortion. It's false, and it's because they don't understand God's kingdom, His methods, His principles. You cannot cheat a law upon which universe is built to run. You can't cheat the law of respiration, the laws of health, the law of love. You can't cheat it. It's always uncompromising. It's just the way things are. 
and, and, and the devil wants us this way. He's a legalist. He wants us to think it's an arbitrary law by an arbitrary God, and therefore you can cheat that law. You can cheat arbitrary laws. You cannot cheat, cheat natural laws. And so this is the way the devil wants us to look at it. And he's developed this entire philosophy taught in religions. That, and, and, and if you think about some of the models of atonement, what was the model of atonement you read in um, Chronicles to Narnia, the uh, lion, the witch, and the wardrobe? It, the, 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 devil got che- uh, the, the white witch got cheated. Okay, I got the son of Adam. You, uh, I, uh, Aslam's going to give me his life instead of the son of Adam. And what happened? There's a big cheat that happened. Didn't get either one. This is common thought in certain elements of Christianity. And so this is why I think some of these ideas sprout up. We have a much much better understanding. We really truly understand that God's law is his character. And when and when the God of love went to create and design and build his universe, he built it and constructed it to run in harmony with his own nature and character. That's how it was designed and run. And when we step out of harmony with that, then sin is lawlessness. We're out of harmony with the protocols it was built upon. And the only result, unless we're put back in harmony, we're rebuilt, recreated, is ruin and death. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have been so patient with us and you have sent Christ to do that which we could not do for ourselves. We open our minds and hearts to you and ask that you would take that coal from the altar of your sanctuary and touch our lips, heal our hearts, restore our characters to be like you. Give us discernment and wisdom, uh, patience and understanding, love for you and love for those, especially those who would, would want to harm us, that we can respond as you would respond with grace and patience and kindness. May this message about you lighten the world. And we pray for our friends around this world who are also meeting obstacles, who are being opposed to, who are having struggles in their communities, that you will send your agencies from heaven to open avenues that the message about you will lighten this world. And we will see you soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.